Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. This is Mitch Winnick, President and Dean of Monterey College of Law and San Luis Obispo College of Law. I need to start off today's show by thanking my co-host Stephen Wagner for covering for me for about the last month while I had the great opportunity to do some international travel with my family. And I know Michael Cohen stepped in as guest co-host on at least one or more of those weekends. So um, I'm here paying my dues to be back. Glad to be back on the air. And I'm joined today by Frank Hespy, who's going to guest co-host with me. Frank, how are you today? I'm doing well, Mitch. A pleasure to be here as well, and welcome back. Well, thank you, Frank. You know, before I get started and talk about our our subject today, I I know most of our guests know that we originate our program out of the central coast of California, and I I just have to, to take a personal note to, as many are doing, thank the firefighters who are risking their lives as we speak. Uh, We have the largest uh, fire out of control in the country right now, some 30,000 acres burning just south of us here in Big Sur with over 5,000 fire personnel working that. And it's just just incredible what they're doing. And I know I share with the the rest of our local community how thankful we are for the work they're doing. So uh, a shout out and a thank you to all the fire professional and the support staff and their families that are out there trying to protect us these days. Uh, So Frank, it's probably a little smoky for you out in Carmel Valley, as a matter of fact, isn't it? It it is. The wind shifted just a few hours ago and and we can smell the smoke and a little bit of ash is drifting over my house these days. But uh, the fire lines are still pretty far away. And again, as you say, there's a lot of really hardworking people out there running up and down ravines to keep the rest of us safe. Yeah, it's just it's it's amazing. But thank uh, well, thank God they're there for us. And, and thank to th- thanks to them for doing it. So today we're going to take a slightly different shift. I, I suspect I don't know where you would have had to been hiding if you didn't know over the last two weeks that we just had the Republican convention and the Democratic convention. Frank, did you get a chance to catch a little airtime on each of those? I did. It was interesting is the only politically safe word I can use for both conventions. (laughs) It was entertaining. It's the best since the circus comes to town. (laughs) So we're going to talk about something a little different, though, because most people, I think, 
believe that in November, we are all going to go in and cast a ballot and individually elect the next president and vice president of the United States. But in fact, if you were paying attention in high school civics, that's not exactly the way it works. So I am delighted that we have here today with us Bill Schreier. Bill Schreier's Number one, a former U.S. attorney, and we'll talk a little about how he made the transition from being a U.S. attorney to a school teacher. But for us, most importantly, he is a civics government uh, moot court coach at Carmel High School here in our area. And so he actually teaches history and government. And we're going to have Bill help us understand how we actually elect the president, vice president of the United States. Bill, welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. Thank you, and thank you for inviting me to come in. So, Bill, first, before we get into the, the details of this, just share with us a little bit. So, you were a U.S. attorney in New York, is that what I remember? Yes, assistant U.S. attorney in Manhattan, the Southern District of New York. And, and so, uh, so, you transitioned from that to becoming a high school teacher. How did that happen? Well, I spent a little time at the Esalen Institute in Big Sur, and while I was there, I was having a conversation with somebody and they found out my background and said, you'd be a great guest speaker at the high school. Um, I thought that was just polite dinner table conversation. <laughs> Next thing you know, um, a teacher who I, is one of my best friends, Therese Strutner, invited me in. And I'd never been, it had actually been 25 years since I was on a high school campus. And I fell in love with it. Uh, I thought the students were just so engaged and engaging. Um, it was completely not what I had expected, and here I am now getting ready to start my 13th year. So, ah, Congratulations. Well, I will shout out and say that my kids went through the program. Both of them, I believe, had you in high school, and they speak very well of you, and they've Thank done you. well in college. So you, know, you must have done a good job. Thank you. So what we want to talk about is the Electoral College, and that's a college that you and I were chatting, chatting earlier uh, Frank, what would you think? What percent of the United States do you think would understand how the Electoral College works? What would well, your guess be? There's obviously no real number, but... Uh, other than the people that went through Bill's AP uh, <laughs> uh, civics class, probably very few. I would guess clearly less than 1%. Yeah, well, I think Bill. What yeah, is it? I think that's probably about right. <laughs> Less than one percent know how we actually elect the president, and vice president of the United States. So that's that's a bit shocking. I thought that I agree. I, I gave it eighty-five, ninety percent might know of it, but obviously you and Bill don't agree on that. <laughs> so today we're going to spend some time helping everyone else understand the process of the electoral college so so bill tell tell us just a little as we start before we go into this first break tell us a little about the concept of the electoral college how does that work okay well i mean first of all let's talk about the term college because i think that that's where a lot of people go off the rails i could see where that would be confusing there's no college involved at all right well <laughs> not a college that's a physical building um i actually uh read the definition to my students of the type of college we're talking about. And that's an organized group of professional people with particular duties, aims, and responsibilities. That's the type of college. And those people, in this case, are electors. Now, to step back, I want to talk about a different institution and how it picks its leader, and that's the Catholic Church. When the Catholic Church needs to replace the Pope because he died or, in the last case, retired, they don't have the 1.2 billion Catholics in the world vote. Instead, the leaders of the church, the cardinals, go to Rome and they talk about who would be a good candidate. They cast their votes and then when the white smoke comes out of the chimney, we have a pope. 
that's called the College of Cardinals. So it's the same idea. We pick people who have experience, training, um, and we tr entrust them to make the decision. That was the original uh, model that the framers conceived. We've moved a little bit away from that, but that's the basic idea. So it really goes back to 1787. The original Constitutional Convention came up with this idea. And as you said, it's gone pretty much unchanged since then. That is so, true. So, Frank, were you awake in high school civics when we went through this process? I, I, I was a political <laughs> hound even back then. <laughs> And, Bill, I was going to ask you the question, as, as you describe it, is, isn't that really the distinction between having a democracy and a republic? And many people, I think, don't understand that, in fact, we don't really live in a democracy, we live in a republic, and we elect people who elect people. Is, could you explain, expand on that a bit? That's absolutely right. I mean, uh, a couple of things about the Electoral College really are emblematic of the system we live in, and one is that we're a republic. We don't make decisions directly. Instead, we elect people to make decisions for us, big decisions. And the other thing to remember about the Electoral College is that it's also very respectful of our federal system. It's actually the states that elect the president. Electors within each state elect the president. So it's not a national undertaking, which I think is also a point of confusion for a lot of people. So electors. So most of us will have never heard of them, and we don't even know how we've selected them. And yet you've just said a number of times, we elect these electors. So, for example, in California, how does that happen? So there are 538 nationwide, and that's we come to that number how? Well, the 538 is actually equal to the number of senators and representatives in all the states combined those of you that did follow along in high school civics, wait, <laughs> wait a second, he's off by three, that's 535. <laughs> well, the 23rd Amendment granted three electoral votes to the District of Columbia. So that's how we have 538 electoral votes. Those are then apportioned amongst the states based on population. Bigger states get more electoral votes than smaller states. So, for example, in California, we have 55 electors. Correct. So, so we're going we're gonna to cast 55 votes for the presidency. Now, somehow in California, we have to select those 55 electors. How do we do that? Well, and, and it's not exactly the same in each state, but the majority of the states follow a similar pattern. Right. And I'm, there's actually two answers to that, and I'm going to uh, answer it one way first, and then you'll correct me if, if uh, I answered it the wrong way. So in California on November 8th, we will hold an election for president, many other elections as well. Okay, so all of us actually do get to cast a vote. On, we do. Or we have the right to cast a vote if we've registered to vote. Correct. Okay. And at the end of the day, those votes for president, and I'm doing air quotes with that, are counted up. You know, it's radio. You do need to tell us when you do the air quotes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and, and so at, when we uh, add up all the votes and find out who actually won the popular vote... The winner of the popular vote in California gets all of the electoral okay. votes in and on California. That, on that step, we're going to take our first break and we're going to come back and figure out how we get from the winner of the popular vote then to these electoral votes. Don't go away. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the law.
Deciding to go to law school brings up questions like, can I afford it? Will I be prepared to take the leap and open my own office when I graduate? I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions at Monterey College of Law. Have you ever dreamed of being a lawyer? We at Monterey College of Law can help make that dream come true with professors who are practicing attorneys and judges. They mentor our graduates. But don't take it from me. Hear what recent graduate Creighton Mandeville says. I wasn't crippled in debt coming out of Monterey College of Law. I came out of it with no debt. I was able to do some working during that time and some savings, so I exited law school with no debt. I did feel prepared coming out of law school. I started helping friends with the issues that came up for them, and Monterey College of Law has so many great faculties and things that there were resources for me. There's never been a better time to become a lawyer. Call us today at 582-4000. That's 582-4000. Or visit us online at montereylaw.edu. That's montereylaw.edu. For 45 years, the Boys and Girls Clubs of Monterey County have been a vital part of our community. The club's mission is to inspire and empower the youth of Monterey County to realize their full potential to become responsible, healthy, productive, and successful citizens. As just one of the club's programs, more than 12,000 children and families have enjoyed safe after-school care at the Boys and Girls Club's Salinas Clubhouse. Boys and Girls Club of Monterey County is very excited to announce that Monterey College of Law is providing one full tuition law school scholarship each year to a former Boys and Girls Club participant. For more information about this exciting opportunity, contact President and CEO Donna Ferrero at dferrero at bgmc.org or call 831-757-4412. Beginning with the Continental Congress in 1774, America's national legislative bodies have kept records of their proceedings. Did you know that these records are available to you online for free? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Congress.gov is the official website for the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate. It is published by the Library of Congress and includes the public records of the U.S. Congress, the Government Publishing Office, and the Congressional Budget Office. Remember, members of Congress work for us, and if you want to see what they're doing, go to congress.gov and watch the actual sessions of Congress, or look up any law that's being proposed. That's congress.gov, C-O-N-G-R-E-S-S dot gov. Are you ready to start law school now? If you've just graduated from college or just thinking of changing your career, now is the time to take that first step. Slow College of Law is accepting applications for May 2016. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School, founded 43 years ago. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. Their highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evenings, and the campus is conveniently located in downtown San Luis Obispo. Let the professionals show you how to make becoming a lawyer a reality. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an information session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admission Wendy Law Revere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org.
Welcome back. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law on the Voice America Business Network and on BizTalk Radio and here on KSCO 1080 on the Central Coast of California. We're talking today about the Electoral College and it may be a surprise to some of our listeners that when they go to vote in November, they're not actually voting for the President of the United States. And Bill Schreier, our guest today, who's a government and civics high school teacher, who is our expert on this, and my guest co-host Frank Hespi and I were just getting to the point of talking about in November, each of us go and cast our popular vote. So in California, where the three of us are sitting, in November we're going to cast a popular vote for one party or the other. So why isn't that how we're electing the president. What happens next, Bill? Well, all we're doing really is saying which candidate we want to support. What really happens is that the popular vote is added up and the winner of the popular vote gets all of the electoral votes that California has. And this goes on in all the states across the union. It's a little bit different in two states, Maine and Nebraska, but that's basically the way it works. So it's, it's, a, it's a winner take all. So correct. no matter how many votes, plus or minus, if the Democratic candidate gets the popular vote in California, that candidate's going to get all 55 of the electoral votes. Absolutely. You win by one vote, you get all 55 of the electoral votes. Okay. And Bill, may I ask, what's the logic about doing it winner-take-all versus doing it proportionately? What's either the history or the, or the reasoning behind such a position? Well, the, in two states, they don't do it that way. Uh, they do uh, district by district. The the idea was actually originally that all you were doing was electing some people who would then vote. You weren't necessarily saying that a candidate would get all 55 electoral votes. It's just that that's how we are uh, in 2016. Back in the day, all you were doing was electing a certain number of people, the electors, and in charging them with making the decision. And in fact, in some states, they didn't have, have an election. The state legislature chose the electors and said, okay, tell us who uh, you think should be president. So it's kind of that amazing balance, Frank, of, of where the, the originally founding fathers wanted to have participation by the people, but they also wanted to have knowledgeable individuals making the final decision. You know, Frank, I know for a fact that you you spent a fair amount of time in the emerging republics of you know, Azerbaijan, Kazakhstan, on and on and on, as they were trying to develop a method of republican government. What uh, does this resonate with you? How did they? Well, you were there when some of these discussions were going on, weren't you? It, it came up a lot. Most recently, I was actually sitting on a panel uh, in Kathmandu, Nepal, as we were debating the, the new Nepalese constitution. And this idea of how you both let people decide, but to be candid, it's the fear of the elite that if you let the mob, so to speak, make a decision, they could make a bad decision. Uh, and so there's a strong anti-democratic theme that runs through the creation of the Electoral College. And again, if we can shift into politics just for a moment, given some of the strong anti-Trump feeling out there among certain folks, both Republican and Democrats, I think that there's some people that are starting to question the nature of democracy as well, just watching somebody with, with strong popular appeal 
you know, potentially get to be our next president. So let's go to the next step. That leads perfectly into the next question of the Electoral College. So, so somebody's going to get those 55 votes, but who picks the 55 people that get to cast those votes? Out of all the people in California, 55 are then going to represent the popular vote to cast actual ballots, aren't they? Right, and this is where it gets a little messy. When you go to the polls on November 8th, there's actually several sets of 55 electors. The Democrats will have their 55 electors. The Republicans will have their 55 electors. And whatever other parties have their 55 electors. And it actually depends on the party how these electors are chosen. Uh, we were talking about this earlier that in California, the nominees of the Democratic Party in each congressional district actually get to choose who they want to be an elector. And so that's how we get those 55 people for the Democrats. The Republicans have a different way. But when you vote, say, for Donald Trump, you're saying you want Donald Trump's electors, the Republican electors, to then vote for him. So what's interesting, and, and Frank, you bring this up in, in kind of this balance of, of how do you control the outcome. What's interesting is they're not actually legally bound to do that. Right, So these 55 electors get picked to cast a vote, and we'll talk in a second about when they do it, actually in December, much to much of our surprise. Uh, and they're going to cast their vote, but they're, they're not legally bound to do it, right? They, they're pledged to it, but they could be, as they call, an unfaithful elector. Right. Yes, the the faithless, faithless, elector. faithless electors, which people worry about, but I, I, there's been fewer than a dozen in our history. They've never uh, actually determined the outcome. But actually, the idea of a faithless elector is consistent with what the framers left us, that they entrusted these people to make the decision. If they didn't stick with the candidate that they had pledged to support, they must have had a good reason. And who knows, maybe we'll, we'll see some of that this November. So Frank, I think you're, you're, you're bringing up the point that I think we saw both in the Democratic and the Republican Party this time. There could conceivably someone who's a, a Bernie Sanders supporter who gets uh, selected to be an elector for the Democrats. There could be someone who's just a flat-out anti-Trump supporter. And the law is not going to require them to cast their vote as the general public has has just deemed, have, have they? So, Bill, let me ask you that, that, that specific question. In California, is it the party, and I'll say the Republican Party, for example, that chooses the elector, or is it Donald Trump who actually chooses his 54 slate of electors now that he's the nominee? In California, it's the party. Got it. So with that in mind, given the... The, the, the controversy that's raging within the Republican Party, do you think that it is possible uh, or potentially likely that the party may pick some people that are so anti-Trump that they could, again, be faithless and, and throw the election towards Hillary? Do you think that's a realistic concern? Well, in terms of actually affecting the outcome of the election, I don't think it's a realistic concern. Uh, that it might happen, I think, is very uh, possible. It, it has happened, but I don't see it uh, steering the election unless we had a very close election like happened in 2000 between uh, George Bush and Al Gore. So, but you're right, Frank. It is, it is legally possible, which makes all this fascinating, and even more so the fact that, as you guys have just said, 99% of the country is clueless about how the process goes along. So, to kind of finish the mechanics of it, so 
the, the state parties have their own process of selecting and confirming their 55. In, in California, the Democratic Party has each of their nominees for the Congress and Senate each designate an, an elector. They cannot serve as electors themselves. So they, they frequently pick state uh, party leaders and state in, can be governors and lieutenant governors and state representatives. They can be party uh, representatives, can be anybody, but they're selected by the nominee for the U.S. Congress and Senate. So when we come back after this break, we're going to take the last step of talking about how these 55 and their 538 colleagues actually cast their ballots. Don't go away. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. Applying to Monterey College of Law is not hard, and we have a financial plan and class schedule that is tailored to meet your needs. I'm Wendy Laubardier, Dean of Admissions at Monterey College of Law. Have you ever dreamed of being a lawyer? We at Monterey College of Law can help make that dream come true without crippling you with debt on graduation day. I chose Monterey College of Law because I wanted to continue working during the day. I had children at home and I wanted to be able to go to school at night where it wouldn't impact what my children needed from me. There really is not crippling debt that you face afterwards. Monterey College of Law has a payment plan which is manageable and they work with you. The other huge benefit of Monterey College of Law is that the professors are judges and lawyers. By taking their classes, you really actually start networking. So I was very fortunate because I also ended up with a mentor. There's never been a better time to become a lawyer. Call us today at 582-4000 or visit us online at montereylaw.edu. For decades, the students at Monterey College of Law have graduated and gone on to pass the bar and become successful attorneys. However, not everyone goes to Monterey College of Law to become an attorney. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions at Monterey College of Law. We also offer students our two-year Master of Legal Studies degree, which can enhance their chosen careers. I was working as a deputy coroner for San Mateo County as a death scene investigator, and I wanted a better idea of the legal issues that were involved in forensic investigations. Everything about Monterey College of Law was accommodating to the uh, course of study I was trying to find. I graduated from Monterey College of Law with no outstanding debt. I'm working as an investigator for the San Mateo County Private Defender's Office, performing indigent defense investigations. For more information, call us today at 582-4000. That's 582-4000. Or visit us online at montereylaw.edu. That's montereylaw.edu. If you are a small business owner, you're subject to many of the same laws and regulations that apply to large corporations. Where do you go for help? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. SBA.gov is the website published by the Small Business Administration. It provides a wealth of information for small business owners, including employment and labor law, intellectual property law, online business laws and regulations, environmental regulations, workplace safety, and foreign worker eligibility. Of course, SBA.gov is not a replacement for having your own business attorney, but it is a free resource that may help you realize when you need to consult an attorney.
sba.gov. Have you thought about a law degree? Did you know you can attend an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo? And you can begin classes in May or in August. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of San Luis Obispo College of Law. San Luis Obispo College of Law is a branch of Monterey College of Law, an accredited law school established 44 years ago. At San Luis Obispo College of Law, we have convenient evening classes, Mondays through Thursdays from 6.30 to 9.30 p.m. We have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. We also have payment programs that allow you to make monthly payments or apply for private student loans. At San Luis Obispo College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. If you've been thinking about a law degree, find out now if San Luis Obispo College of Law is your law school. Attend one of our information sessions and get answers to your questions. Or call me, Wendy Law Revere, at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org. That's slolaw.org. It is one thing to argue with your friends at the bar. But have you ever wondered what it would be like to argue in front of the United States Supreme Court? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Oye.org, spelled O-Y-E-Z dot O-R-G, is a website published by the Free Law Project at Chicago Kent School of Law. You can go to Oye.org and listen to 60 years of actual oral arguments at the United States Supreme Court. Written summaries are provided for cases that go all the way back to 1789. Oye.org also provides biographical information on every United States Supreme Court justice and offers an online tour of the Supreme Court building. Go to Oye.org to see if you have what it takes to present a winning argument. Welcome back. This is Mitch Winnick welcoming you to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. We are talking today about something that we think most people have no idea, which is when they vote, when you vote in the November election for president and vice president, your votes are not actually what gets counted in the election of the president or vice president. It turns out, much to many of your surprise today, 538 individuals are going to meet on the first Monday after the second Wednesday in December, just in case somebody's trying to keep track of that, we're going to say there are 538 people are going to meet on the first Monday after the second Wednesday in December and cast 538 ballots, the majority of which must be cast in favor of one candidate or the other to become president and vice president of the United States. So, you know, Frank, you had asked Bill about why we did that as a republic. But Bill, tell, tell us again, so why is it that we have this somewhat convoluted multi-step process to pick a president? Well, interestingly enough, there if, if anyone knows about the Federalist Papers, there's one devoted to the Electoral College. And uh, when I was reading it, I was struck by the fact that the Electoral College was actually the least controversial aspect of the original constitution. And one of the reasons that they gave for creating this way of electing 
the president was that it knits the nation together. You cannot win the presidency unless you have broad appeal among several states. If we just had a nationwide popular vote, then a candidate could focus on one region, lock up the popular vote there, and be the president. That can't happen with the Electoral College. So every state has to be represented, and thus the 538 votes, which represent the total number of senators, congressmen, and a bonus of three for the District of Columbia. That's correct. I do want to just say one thing about what happens in December. The the electors for each state actually go to their state capital. It's not 538 meeting together, but in California, the 55 who had been elected go to the state capital, and that's where they formally cast their vote for president. And those votes are then sealed in an envelope and sent from each state capital to Washington, D.C., where they're opened then in January and counted. They're actually opened on January 6th by the Vice President of the United States, who's sitting as President of the Senate, and those votes are tallied, tabulated, and we don't have a president until that vote is taken. Correct. So, so you know, Frank, share again. This. So, you've, you've, we talk about this as distant history, so we're talking about something back from the 1700s. But as you said, in recent years, and just actually in the last couple of years, you were in Nepal, you know, grappling with these issues of what is the best way to select a government. I mean, it really is a contemporary issue, isn't it? Well, I think so very much so. And again, remembering my history as well from, from high school civics class, there was a big divide that I think Bill can talk to us about between the smaller states and the larger states. And this exact distinction came up in Nepal as well, because there's a lot of rural areas that did not have large populations, but covered a lot of geographical ground, versus Kathmandu and the larger cities that had larger populations. And the smaller rural areas were concerned with being dominated and essentially blocked out of political power by, by the majorities in the cities as well. So, Bill, if you could touch upon sort of did the Electoral College come about to really preserve the rights of states generally and specifically the, the smaller states in this, this new democracy of us? Yes, absolutely. Although it does have some proportional aspect to it. Interestingly enough, if the election ends up in a deadlock, Mitch said earlier, you have to win a majority in the Electoral College to actually become president. Let's say that doesn't happen. It's a tie or a third party candidate wins enough to keep any one candidate from getting the 270 required. That's where we really see the small states come to the fore, because if the election is thrown into the House of Representatives, each state no matter how big or how small, gets just one vote as they try to then determine who will be the president. So, so you're suggesting that Delaware would have as much of an effect over the next president as California, although I assume California's got 30 or 40 as many people in it. Absolutely. Yes, yeah, so that's an interesting uh, process that, that we see that balance. So we've, so we've got the 538. If they can't decide, goes to the House of Representatives, and if they can't decide, there's still a third step, right? The Senate gets involved? Then they look at the, uh, the election then goes into the, into the Senate. The 12th Amendment talks about uh, how that works out. Because actually under the original conception, uh, I don't know if I want to muddy the waters with this, there was a deadlock. And the 12th Amendment gives us yet another out. But even that may not work out. And there's provisions, I want to say, in the... 
20th Amendment, which talks about uh, what might happen if we still don't have a president and Inauguration Day rolls around. The framers really did figure out every possible contingency. So I want to go back and just talk. So, we, so we've heard the process. So as, as surprising as this will be to someone who has no political science background to find out that the steps are they vote in the general election in November based on the total popular vote in their individual state, then those states' electors will be assigned winner-take-all in 48 of the 50 jurisdictions, winner-take-all to the candidate of that party. And then the electors that have been selected by the party, not the candidate, are then... They come to a state at a state location on the same day all across the country and cast their votes supposedly for the majority winner. But I want to come back to this issue that you raised, Frank. Isn't it amazing that the, the founders had the trust to say that there's no binding law that says they have to vote for the way the popular election went? As Bill pointed out, they really wanted them to be independent delegates to to cast that vote by their conscience i mean it, do you where else in the world would we have that kind of i guess ultimate respect for those individual citizens that are going to select the president well and i would only add mitch that that works and bill can touch upon this because the electors follow the will of the people i think it would be a fascinating and, and perhaps scary scenario if routinely these 538 people did not follow the, the popular will, then what would, what would happen to democracy? So, Bill, I guess my question to you is, has there been faithless electors in the past, and, and how often does it happen? It happens very infrequently. Mitch and I were talking about this earlier, and I think there have been nine in American history. It's not even clear that some of them were intentional as much as accidental. Uh, so it's it's really never been something that has actually decided uh, an election. But, you know, this idea that the, the electors are uh, trusted to make a decision, we're forgetting that in the original conception, the states did not have to have a popular election. And there weren't a slate for one candidate and a slate for another candidate. If California existed back in the framing time, they would have picked 55 electors. The state legislature might have done it. And those 55 electors would then go and vote for president. We've now moved to a situation where each candidate has electors who are pledged to them, but that was not the original model. They were truly entrusted, just like the, the cardinals of the Catholic Church, with choosing the next president. It's kind of an amazing, it's, it, it's an amazing process for those of us that study politics in the United States. Uh, I do think you're right, Frank, that it does give us pause that, I think it's possible for the first time, certainly in our lifetime, that there's the possibility that those who don't support the common or the, the popular vote of their nominee for their party could step up and do this. And when we come back after the break, we'll talk a little about how the, the parties themselves select electors to make sure that that doesn't happen. But as... But as Bill Schreier pointed out, there have been 
nine over the history of the entire history of the United States. That's not very many. And he mentioned the, the, the most recent one happened in 2004 where they actually think someone made a mistake in casting their ballot. But since they didn't have to sign, this was in Minnesota, since they didn't have to sign their ballot, they didn't know whose ballot had made the mistake. And so they actually put John Edwards as the president and John Kerry as the vice president. So Edwards ended up with more votes than Kerry did, uh, just as far as a vice presidential candidate. And the one thing I'll actually point out for one last historical little piece before we go on a break, it wasn't, you mentioned, it wasn't how we originally set it up. When we first set it up, the electors each got two votes and they just cast them. There was no vote for president, vote for vice president, right? For the very first set of elections. Exactly right, until the 12th Amendment changed it. And uh, because each elector uh, chose two candidates, we ended up in a deadlock in the election of 1800. And that's what led to, then to the 12th Amendment, where now electors put their choice for president and choice for vice president to avoid that. All right. Well, you're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the law. Don't go away. We're talking about how we elect the president and vice president of the United States. That's coming up this year, as we've seen in the last two weeks with presidential conventions. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Making a change in career is a serious decision that affects both you and your family. You have many questions that need to be answered before you can make a commitment. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions at Monterey College of Law. Have you ever dreamed of being a lawyer? We at Monterey College of Law can help make that dream come true. And it's affordable. But don't take it from me. Hear what recent graduate Dan Cullum says. Before I was entering law school, I was an airline pilot. After I retired, I decided that I would go to law school. Monterey College of Law was the avenue to fulfill that desire. I loved Monterey College of Law. It was small classes. The professors were very helpful, personal. You could talk to them. Tuition is not exorbitant at Monterey College of Law, which is the opposite of the way it is at other places. It's affordable. They have a, a program at Monterey College of Law that lets you pay as you go. So it's financially possible. There's never been a better time to become a lawyer. Call us today at 582-4000 or visit us online at montereylaw.edu. Long before Woody's cruised Beach Street, kids and teens have needed to know that they are important and that they belong. Since 1969, the Boys and Girls Club of Santa Cruz has provided a place where potential is released and great futures are forged. Help celebrate our 45th anniversary by emailing your club memories and pictures to celebrate 45 years at boysandgirlsclub.info or call 423-3138, extension 23. We are also excited to announce that Monterey College of Law is providing one full tuition law school scholarship each year to a former Boys and Girls Club participant. Contact Executive Director Bob Langseth at 423-3138, extension 21, or email bob at boysandgirlsclub.info to learn more about this exciting opportunity. Consumer scams, fraud, deceptive business practices. Where do you go for protection? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. F. 
FTC.gov is the website published by the Federal Trade Commission. As the nation's consumer protection agency, the FTC wants to know about businesses that cheat people out of money. If you've been the victim of consumer fraud, you should file a complaint at FTC.gov. Although the FTC's Bureau of Consumer Protection will not help you recover your individual damages, your complaint may initiate an investigation that results in companies or individuals being sued by the government for fraud, deceptive practices, or unfair business practices. If you want more information about how to protect yourself as a consumer, go to the Bureau of Consumer Protection at FTC.gov. Are you ready to start law school now? If you've just graduated from college or are thinking of changing your career, now is the time to take that first step. Slow College of Law is accepting applications for May 2016. San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School founded 43 years ago. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. Their highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evenings and the campus is conveniently located in downtown San Luis Obispo. Let the professionals show you how to make becoming a lawyer a reality. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an information session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy Law Revere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The president and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. ConstitutionCenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to ConstitutionCenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. Welcome back. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. Today we're talking about the method that we elect the U.S. president and vice president, and it is not by the popular vote that we have in November. My guest here is Bill Schreier. Bill Schreier is a former U.S. attorney, and he's a teacher at the Carmel High School teaching government, civics, and history. And my guest host today, who I've had many times before, is Frank Hespi, an attorney in Monterey and former dean of Monterey College of Law. So, Frank, you had raised the question earlier, and Bill mentioned it, but I want to come back to this. You're telling me it is possible for an individual to win the popular vote in the United States of America and not end up being elected president of the United States, right? That's, that's correct. And so in fact, Walk us back through how that conceivably could happen. Okay, and, and, and it, this is the thing that upsets people the most. If they know anything about the Electoral College, they know it's possible to 
win the popular vote and lose the college. Well, imagine that one candidate wins some states by huge margins and masses a lot of popular votes. The other candidate wins more states, but by razor thin margins. Well, the candidate who ends up with more electoral votes will not have the same number of popular votes because where they won, they won by the slightest of margins. This has happened twice. We all know about the Bush-Gore election in 2000. Al Gore had 500,000 more popular votes. And also in 1888, it occurred between Benjamin Harrison and Grover Cleveland. It has not occurred uh, beyond that. So, so in those cases, we the Electoral College, by the math you described, ends up defining who's president, even though they have the highest uh, number of popular votes. So, Frank, how does that roll out? No, not just nationally, but again, I look to you to give us a more global view. How is it you sell up a, a, a concept that there's a subset of folks who are going to select who the president is? Well, I would maybe answer that question from some of the conversations I had in, in emerging democracies, uh, because I was overseas after the Bush versus Gore vote. And many people suggested that America is not a democracy, and as such, that was their justification for, again, living in Tajikistan or some other countries that aren't democracies functionally either, by basically saying, well, America doesn't have to follow its own popular vote, so why should anybody else? So this idea, I think, is really uh, disconcerting to many people as well, which actually leads to a question, Bill, I was going to have for you. Given the state of today, do you think the Electoral College is still necessary? Is there still value in it? Should it be scrapped? And has there been discussions of that over the years? I think it's a really timely conversation. I, I dare say that there are quite a lot of folks in both parties who wish that the election of the next president would be left to just the the party elite, if you will. And you make a, an excellent point. And in fact, it's something that I have to hammer throughout the year with my students. We're not in a democracy. Majority does not rule in a lot of places in our system. And this is just another one of those places. So is, is it hard for you to get this through to a high school class? I mean, uh, it's hard for me to grasp it. And I've been a lifelong poli-sci guy, and in preparing for this show, I think probably all three of us went back and reread the rules to make sure we understood it. But how, how does this go over? How do they grasp that as a high school student? Well, fortunately, we have some examples of direct democracy that um, the students think, well, that wasn't the greatest idea. At the state level, for example, in California, we have all kinds of ballot measures. And we talk about some of those ballot measures that have been passed by the voters because those are simply an act of direct democracy. And then they get it. Maybe there's some things we should not entrust to the masses because they don't necessarily have the sophistication required or for various other reasons. That goes down hard when it comes to talking about the next leader of the country, though. I will admit that. So, so, Frank, what would it take? So if you, if you, you ask the question, is it time to reconsider this? What would it take to change this? Well, you know, and I, I'm going to use that question to sort of dovetail into maybe sort of the last topic I wanted to touch on with Bill, which was the issue of third parties. Aha, uh -huh, yes. We, ha we haven't had a third party that's played a, a, a serious role in a long time, but there are a lot of disenfranchised Bernie Sanders supporters that I think are talking Green Party, and clearly there's a fair number of Republicans that are talking Libertarian in, 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 you know, in lieu of voting for Trump or, or Clinton. Bill, how would it work if a third party 
actually won a state. I mean, I'm not sure what Vermont is going to do, but but one could imagine a few of the smaller states that a third party could actually get a majority of votes, given the the unique situation we're in this year. Well, that then opens up the possibility that neither candidate will win a majority in the Electoral College. And it's really important to understand that, that it is not a plurality. You don't just need to get the most votes. You have to win a majority. If you only have two candidates, the worst you can do is a tie. But if you have a third candidate, you could end up with nobody winning the majority. And then it goes into the House of Representatives, as we talked about. And sure, that's a possibility. It hasn't been that long since a third party candidate did win some states. I believe George Wallace in 1968 won five states. But it still wasn't enough to keep uh, Richard Nixon from winning the majority in the Electoral College. So it really ends up being stacked against a third party, doesn't it? That 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 the momentum it would take to win enough states would be just tremendous. You might nip away at a few states, but the odds of a third party really taking the election is pretty slim, isn't it? Absolutely, and that's what the framers intended, that you had to have broad appeal. That's interesting. Uh, yes, Frank, go ahead. Sure. And so, Bill, when you talk to your students, uh, and again, the idealism of youth is, is one of the, the, the wonderful themes of our society. And so when they talk about voting their conscience and, and voting what matters, do you sort of explore with them the, the effect of voting for a third party and whether it has any effect at all or whether it has any danger? And, and I'll go back to sort of the Ralph Nader uh, election. Or, or, candidacy during the Bush versus Gore election, and people have argued that that essentially made George Bush president by Ralph Nader, you know, running as a third party. I was wondering your thoughts on that and the kind of conversations you have with America's youth. Well, since we don't live in a swing state, uh, it really isn't that big of an issue voting for a third party candidate in California. But I do talk about the Florida election, uh, and I think it came down to less than a 1,000 votes. Ralph Nader pulled 20,000 popular votes. Had he not been the third-party candidate, or had he not received that much support, there's a different president in 2000. So it is significant. Well, thank you to both of you. We're wrapping up today, Wagner and Winnick on the Law. We've talked about how we elect the president and vice president. And I guess the, the final word would have to be whether you're in a swing state or not, November is still an important time for you to cast your vote. It does participate in the process, even though it might not be a direct democracy. This is Mitch Winnick for Wagner and Winnick on the Law, reminding you that if you don't know the law, know a lawyer. is always a good idea. Each week, Wagner and Winnick on the Law helps you sort out the legal issues and questions in a forum with judges, lawyers, and policy experts answering your questions and discussing your personal rights within the legal system. Law School Dean Mitchell Winnick, along with law professor Stephen Wagner, will discuss the sometimes ever-changing laws and policies to keep you in the know. Listen every Thursday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern, on Voice America Business. If you don't know the law, know a lawyer. 
The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 